I hate to hear you talk about all women as if they were fine ladies instead of rational creatures, remarks Anne Elliot in Jane Austen's book Persuasion. None of us wants to be in calm waters all our lives, close quote. This is the After Dinner Scholar podcast from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. It's always a great pleasure on the After Dinner Scholar to introduce you to books written by our faculty. And Dr. Tiffany Schubert's book, Jane Austen's Romantic Medievalism, Courtly Love and Happy Endings, has just been released. Well, Dr. Schubert, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jane Austen's Romantic Medievalism, Courtly Love and Happy Endings. Tell us what the book is about. So obviously, spinoffs on Jane Austen are very popular right now. We've had Jane Austen and zombies. Uh, <laughs> Jane Austen updated right in all possible ways. And, and this book, right, instead of, instead of Jane Austen and zombies, is really thinking about Jane Austen and the knight and the lady and, and really the whole medieval courtly romantic tradition and Austin's careful, imaginative, nuanced critique and response to, to that tradition. Now you say in your introduction, quote, feminist scholars tend to read Austin from the perspective of modern feminism, while I am reading her, in this book at least, from the perspective of the literary tradition that precedes her. I read from the past forward to Austin. They read from the present back to Austin. Um, tell us about that. How does that make a difference? Some feminist scholars look at Jane Austen and think, how disappointing. She doesn't go far enough. Her heroines end up married, and sometimes they end up married to significantly older men. Uh, there's a, a significant age gap between Emma and, and Mr. Knightley. So it, it looks like, oh, the spirited young woman has to be tamed by the wise older man. And, and that's sort of the fate of her heroines. None of them end in, none of her novels, that is, end in unconventional ways. Right? All of her heroines end up married. None of them are going to be striking it out on their own to become a governess or an adventurer or any, anything like that. So, so they'll also think, man, no, this is this is this is kind of disappointing. And and it, it also can look like the men come out on top, and that Austin is submitting to the gender conventions of her age. And while to a certain extent, Austin, they are right. Austin uh, does not, cannot, is deeply aware of. The, the limitations on women in, in her period. On the other hand, if we look at Austen in the long history of depictions of women in, in literature, we actually see that she's, she's pretty radical. And I don't mean that in a like, politically radical way or you know, in kind of the way that we would think of radical, but in a sense that she's looking at this traditional literary representations of, of women and she sees them as woefully inadequate. So I can make this very, very particular. I already mentioned Mr. Knightley and Emma, and, and so some feminist scholars are, are very disappointed right, with, with Emma, and, and they think Mr. Knightley is this sort of perfect standard, and Emma has to learn to conform to him. And, and they get there in part, I think, by working right, from the present right, back to the past, but so I said, I, I start with the past and I'm working towards the present, the present being, being Austin. And in that 
And in that way, we actually see not that Emma has to learn to submit to the superiority of Mr. Knightley, but that actually what Austin does is to give us a vibrant heroine who grows, who, who, right, who fails, obviously, who is profoundly imperfect, but goes on this moral, spiritual journey of transformation in a way that is very, very rare in the literary history. Okay, so if we're looking, looking at the past, we see that so many of the women are, are more stagnant, they sort of remain perfect, or maybe they do grow a little bit, but they tend to be the kind of side characters. And what Austin does is to center the growth and development of, of women, not their growth and development, right, in a, in a kind of vocation way, right? They get jobs and things like that, but their moral and spiritual growth. So they have these rich inner lives that few women do in previous literature. So for example, in Mallory, Guinevere and uh, Isolde are, they're just, they're kind of in the background. They're there, but uh, they don't, they're not, they're not front and center. That's right. They're not. And they might be dangerous to the men. Certainly Guinevere's relationship with Lancelot is fairly destructive of, of the round table in Camelot in, certainly in, Mallory's, in Mallory's view. Or these women in, in, in the romantic tradition often have a kind of, uh, I said, a sort of a stasis. They're sort of, they, they enter the story perfect. They exist and endure throughout the story perfectly and, and uh, perfectly as well. And it's the knight's journey towards the lady that is really the center of, of the story. It's the knight maybe who, who will fail and, and then has to overcome that failure to, to reunite himself with, with his lady. And, and so Austin is aware of these conventions of, of gender in, in, in the courtly tradition. And, and you know, I think she says, well, wait a minute. What if the woman has a kind of knightly adventure, not that she's going out to fight dragons, anything like that, but what if she undergoes a kind of quest, or a quest for happiness, and, and, and faces obstacles, goes down wrong paths, has to uh, uh, acknowledge her limitations, her failures, has opportunities for self-knowledge and profound growth in, in the virtues? What, what, if, what if the woman does that? So she kind of flips the, the gender norms on their head mm. in, in her novels and has the woman become a kind, of, a kind of knight. Yeah, so in a sense, Emma is knightly before she's even married to Mr. Knightly. So I, actually, I think, I think both of them have, have qualities of, of knightliness in them. And Austin is using both characters to redefine knightliness. So the, 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 the knight who goes on the quest and, and has adventures and and tries to achieve that which he, which he most deeply desires uh, is very much kind of Emma's, Emma's story. And, and then we see in, right, in Mr. Knightley, Austin is thinking about what, what is it that, that makes a knight? And, and Emma thinks, well, a knight is somebody who rescues people, which, again, is understandable. That, that is actually how we tend to think of what a knight is, certainly from the stories we've been told, or if you've read Don Quixote, that's why he goes out adventuring. He says, All right, I'm going out to help those who are in distress. This is what a knight does, he rescues. But Emma's mind is, is a sort of um, on fire with all of these you know, dramatic kinds of rescues. Right? So she thinks, uh, this is what knightly service looks like. It looks like 
Frank Churchill rescuing Harriet from the gypsies. This is a, a, a pretty central moment in, in Emma. And she thinks, ah, look, Frank has rescued Emma, or excuse me, Frank has rescued Harriet, so obviously Harriet and Frank must be in love, right? Uh, because he rescued her, and once a knight rescues a lady, obviously they fall in love. This is just how, how things work. And there, there's something to that, right? Frank has done, has done something good, right? It's not a bad thing that Frank did. But Emma has to learn that the, the kind of service that a knight renders to his lady can take a very different form. And, and the service that Knightley, Mr. Knightley is rendering to her throughout the novel is really his moral service. Right? He, he is pointing out her faults. He's calling her to something higher. He, he's showing sort of everyday kindness in a way. And, and so she has to, to learn to see that as, as knightly service and see that as love. Now, on the other hand, I actually do think that Mr. Knightley does, he has to grow and change himself. It's, it's much more subtle than Emma's growth, but he himself has to become, he actually does have to become more knightly in the sense of more like a knight in love, or he has to, he has to stop lecturing Emma. He has to stop <laughs> correcting her. He, he does have to stop acting like, like a teacher to her. And, and we see that at the, at the end of the novel, it's actually one of the longest denouements in Austen's canon. Uh, so that they get engaged, and then we have a pretty long period after that. And one of the things we see is, is Mr. Knightley telling Emma things like, you have borne with me like no other woman in England has, right? I have lectured you and corrected you, right? And you, and you have been able to take it. You know? and, and he thinks that she is perfect. Uh, in spite of her, in spite of her, her faults, he speaks to her like a lover, and it's a it's a really wonderful transformation. You talk about Austen championing feminine virtues. Uh, how does she do that? Give us some examples. So I want to I want to be clear. I don't think that Austen sees particular virtues as belonging to women and particular virtues as belonging to men. I think that she sees virtue as belonging to the category of human. And she sees women as belonging to that category. And so therefore capable of achieving these virtues. And this is a, in a way, a, actually a, a somewhat of a radical position that she's taking. The conduct books that are written uh, at the time are presenting this vision of virtues in a very gendered way, right? There's sort of these feminine virtues and these masculine virtues, and this is what women, you know, women, women do this and, and, and men do this, and I think Austin deeply disagrees with that. She's in line with Mary Wollstonecraft, who is uh, one of the early early feminists in the in, in the feminist tradition, and and right, and both of them are thinking, no, women are human, women are rational creatures, just like men are, which means that they can pursue the same virtues that men can. The same virtues are deeply connected to, to happiness. So we have women in quest, in quest of happiness pursuing those virtues. So we see someone like, like Emma, who at the beginning of the novel, and, and, and probably for most of the novel, really is trying to govern everybody else's life. Emma wants, Emma wants to actually be a, a romancer. She wants to be the one who's writing the medieval romances and putting the Lady of the Knights and the, and the ladies together. And making everybody happy. And making everybody happy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that's Emma's ambition. She actually doesn't want to be the lady. She wants to be the author, uh, which is a really fascinating uh, take on, 
on the, on the tradition. And there's a great deal of pride in Emma and a great deal of blindness in Emma. And, and so as she tries to become the author, the romancer, she, she keeps failing. She tries to get Harriet and Mr. Elton together, right? And then Harriet and Frank Churchill uh, together. And, and then and these, matches, these matches don't work. And, and she's, she's confronted over and over again with her, her limitations, her imperfections, her blindness. And, and what this becomes is opportunity for her to grow in, in humility. She has to realize the limitations of her own understanding of reality, of, of human nature. She also grows in, in charity, in, in love. Uh, we see one of the most wonderful moments for Emma is, well, one of the most horrible moments, of course, is when she insults Miss Bates. <laughs> and then one of the most wonderful moments for Emma is when she makes things right with, with Miss Bates. And, and that's an act of, of, of love on her part. So we see these, these women taking on, practicing, having to grow in in these you know, deeply, deeply important virtues. I see, say someone like Anne Elliot, who Austin um, famously said right, was possibly too good for her. Anne is maybe one of the most morally upright characters or heroines in Austin's canon from, from the beginning. But even, this is persuasion. Yes, this is right. Yes, yes, this is, this is persuasion now. And, but but even Anne has to has to grow, and I think Anne grows in courage, fortitude. She has to given she's given the occasion to not just be uh, the the neglected, possibly even in in a way kind of emotionally abused wallflower that she is in her family, but she has this opportunity to really it's a kind of rebirth and resurrection for her that enables her to become courageous. And she is actually the one who can reach out to Captain Wentworth. Um, she can speak out to him in, in this remarkably courageous way. So yeah, I think we see throughout Austin's canon, these women growing into virtue, and then that virtue is really the, the way in which they are able to receive the happiness that they have at the end. Well, let me ask you, finally about happy endings. Is this a distinctly Christian character of Austen's novels? I think it is her Christian worldview that enables Austen to have a vision for happiness and a confidence in happiness and in a happy ending. You wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that only, right? only Christian could, could have a happy ending. But for Austen, certainly her Christian faith gives her uh, the conviction that happiness is possible. She she has a, a prayer where she, she she prays both for eternal happiness, but then also asks, but right, sort of in the, in the meantime, grant us the happiness right, on on earth that really that that virtue is the best security for. Right? She she asks, and in in persuasion. At the very beginning of the novel, and this is a very famous passage in, in Persuasion, we learn that Anne Elliot, who was persuaded to give up Captain Wentworth, thinks that that was the wrong decision. And, and we're told that she practiced prudence at a young age and, and, and she has had to learn 
romance as she has gotten older. For Austin in that moment there, in that, in that novel, I think romance is, is not, it's not just a literary tradition. It's not just what we think of, of romance or men, men and women falling in love and you know, being passionate about it. It's actually, it's a virtue. And it's a virtue that combines a trust in God's providence and also a trust in, in human exertion. This is what Austin tells us, so that human beings can, can act in this world in a way that is oriented or kind of, there's a kind of confidence in the way that we act because God is good, cares for us, wants to bless us, has this providential oversight of, of the world, and then that our, our exertions, our choices, our, our growth in virtue, our, the actions that we, that we take are meaningful and can, can turn out for the good. So this, this combination of, of providence and human exertion and the virtue of romance is what allows Austin I think, to have, yeah, a, really a, a kind of hope for, for happiness and for happy endings. She's of course deeply aware of the brokenness of the world, of the imperfection, of the injustice, and she knows that marriages aren't perfect, families aren't perfect, where it's, 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 it's not as if you make one choice and then happiness and then it's sort of there. She, she's not unrealistic in that way, but, but she, she, she is trying to educate us into that, I think that virtue of romance and a vision of happiness that we, that we ought to strive for. Now, we may have some listeners who have never read Jane Austen. Where should they start? So, of course, the, the classic Austen is Pride and Prejudice, which is a really fantastic and, and lovable novel. So I, would, I think I would, I would probably recommend that as a kind of quintessential Austen. My my personal favorites are, are Emma and Persuasion. Those are the ones that I've they talked most about, those are the ones I focus primarily on in the, in the book. And I think that they're, they're Austin at her, sort of the height of her power. Here she's coming to her own as, an, as a novelist and she has mastered her craft and she is confident and she knows, and she knows what she is doing. Well, you've written a scholarly book. Do you have any plans for a popular book? I'd really love to do something a little bit, a little bit more mainstream. I'm deeply interested in, in the history of, of happy endings, of, of happiness. And so I'd be very, very interested in kind of looking at taking a really broad view and, and looking at the happy ending throughout history and making an argument of, maybe more popular argument, uh, less kind of academic argument for the value of, of happy endings. Right? Why is it that we want to read stories that end happily? And, and then also, why should we read stories that end happily? Some time ago, we recorded a distance learning course, Jane Austen, Courtly Love and Happy Endings, featuring Dr. Schubert. The course is a wonderful introduction to Jane Austen, if you have not read her novels, and an excellent way to grow your understanding of this complex author if you're already familiar with her work. The course is free, but we ask you to go to our website, wyomingcatholic.edu, to register. 
And let me add that for years, I labored under the complete misapprehension that Jane Austen was an author for women. Not so. Austen's insights into human nature, families, friendships, courtship, and marriage should be pondered by all of us. So let me commend Jane Austen and Dr. Schubert's commentaries on Jane Austen to all of us. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.